As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our Champions League quarterfinal first leg review. Atletico Madrid kept the score down against Man City by refusing to play any soccer. Liverpool got the result we mostly expected them to get on a feisty night in Lisbon. Villarreal gave us a surprise of the round by keeping the Bavarians at bay. And Chelsea were like my childhood cat. They got run over by a big Benz. My name's Ryan Bailey. <laughs> Joining me today is a man I don't think would have predicted Villarreal to beat Bayern Munich. Taylor Rockwell, sorry for making that intro dark. I'll take it. And no, I would not have. Uh, but at the end of that game, I would have predicted that they should have won by more. We'll talk about that one. But Villarreal, man, they could have won that one like 4-0 against Bayern Munich. That's a rare feat. Have. They may be regretting not running that scoreline yeah. up, Taylor. Perhaps we should yeah. talk about that later. Also joining us, Taylor, is a man who likes to give his analysis room to breathe. Like Diogo Silva likes to give Karim Benzema room to breathe and run and score. Joe Lowry, hello. It's only the considerate thing to do, Ryan. I think I think it's just Thiago Silva being a gentleman. Also, what <laughs> happened to your cat? I don't want to talk about it, even though I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. You you do you, man. You do you. We'll leave it there, I'll, Joe. I'll just we'll be leave left it there. wondering. It's a story for another day. Also, here is a man who's taking time out from launching the Darwin Nunes fan club to speak to us today. Is that right, Graham Rudman? That that is correct. I I uh, I do like that man. I don't know. There's just something about him. He's going to be really good for. I would say Atletico Madrid. It feels like he's got Atletico Madrid written all over him, but maybe maybe they don't ever get him the ball, and that's a bit of a waste, just like it is for every striker they sign. So actually, now I've talked myself out of that. Keep him away from Atletico Madrid anywhere but Atletico Madrid. Do you think he goes to the Premier League, Graham? Uh, seem, seems that way. Looking at the speculation, I think Newcastle were looking mm. at him at, uh, in, in January. Uh, Manchester United have been mentioned. Actually, keep him away from Manchester United as well. Uh, yeah, Atletico Madrid and Manchester United <laughs> anywhere but but them. Uh, it's all good. I'm I'm still part of the fan club. I say, Graham, if he went to Newcastle, I think Darwin might be a natural selection. Maybe we'd oh. see some evolution in his game. Oh, very good, very good. Thank you very much. Dad jokes are plenty off the top here. Um, guys, before we get going, some very very important personal news I need to um, put out there. Um, there's now a Starbucks in Rome. I'm very, very happy about it. It's in a very fancy high-end shopping mall I've never been to. It's quite far from my house, but I'm going to make a trip there. Um, listeners, How you know, far from your house, Ryan? It's, it's like 30 miles away. <laughs> is, that, is that too far to go for Starbucks? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. especially when you live in Italy. <laughs> my God. My God. All I'm saying is I've been loudly expressing a desire for a Starbucks in Rome. Howard Schultz comes back and is the CEO of Starbucks like last week. This week, a new Starbucks goes in. I'm just saying... Schultz 2024, Taylor. He gets stuff done. Does he also yeah. live in your street? <laughs> I think the rule should have to be that if Ryan is going to fulfill this wish of trekking 30 miles to get a Starbucks <laughs> coffee, you should have to wear pleated khakis and white sneakers just to truly be an American abroad. I think that's the only way it's allowed. And a baseball cap. Fanny well. pack yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to learn to speak twice as loud as well, Taylor, in that case. Well, that's, I mean, that's how you speak fluent Italian, is by <laughs> yeah. speaking English louder, obviously. Well, you've already got that, that, that bit nailed down. I do. Speaking twice as loud. I do. I'll fit right <laughs> in. I'll fit right in. Anyway, just wanted to get it off my chest. Also, um, 
the Sky Sports have a Super 6 game. It's like a predictor game. I don't know if you guys know the NBC Sports predictor game. It's kind of like that where you predict correct scores. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, for the first, for the Tuesday night games, Man City, Atleti and Benfica, Liverpool, I've got 100% correct. I've never done that before. Very happy with myself. And with that, why don't we lead into Manchester City 1, Atletico Madrid 0. Kevin De Bruyne with the goal. Uh, Graham, I think it's safe to say this tie definitely isn't over, is it? No, absolutely not. And um, I would say Atleti did what Atleti do in this match. But the, the truth is, we haven't really seen this sort of performance from them very often this season. We saw it in parts against Manchester United, but... This was the sort of compact, well-drilled, quintessentially Simeone performance from Atletico um, against a City team that had to work really hard to, to, to break them down. There were honestly times when Atletico Madrid were in a 5-5-0 with uh, Yao Felix and, and Antoine Griezmann tucked in as the, as the wide men in the midfield and um, two blocks of five, as I say, they stayed narrow, closed up the lines and for the most part neutralised... Manchester City, who of course are, are one of the best attacking units in, in European football right now. And um, absolutely, it, it, keeps them, it keeps them in the tie. I, I'm not going to say this was the most exciting game. It was a bit of a slog at times. City had 71% of possession to Atletico's 29%. 283 final third touches to 36. 15 shots to zero from Atletico Madrid. Um, and that's the first time in, in Simeone's 11 years as, as, as Atletico Madrid manager that they haven't attempted a single shot on goal for all that they have that reputation for being a defensive unit. That's the first time that that has happened. There's normally some sort of threat in transition and I think that was the one failing of this performance from Atleti because I understand why they play in, in this way. I, I do find some of the narrative around performances like this quite quite strange because City clearly have a talent advantage and yet people get weirdly angry at Atleti playing uh, like not playing straight into their hands I mean is that is that kind of is that the argument that Simeone should be playing a wide open formation at the Etihad and just playing straight into to City's hands so I, I, I think largely Atleti's game plan worked well but they were they were lacking that threat on the, in the transition on the counter-attack that they normally had that we saw against Manchester United in the last round so if there was a failing in their game plan it, it, it was that and maybe that was the thing that contributed to a lot of people thinking this is quite a boring game. Graham, you talking there about Atleti being so deep that it hurt themselves on the counter those are, those are things that we see from teams deep in tournaments. Like we see that from Sweden at the Euros we see that from I, I guess just Sweden everywhere because that's what they do but they're, they're so deep, and Atleti were so deep at times in this game that whoever was trying to drive forward with the ball or whoever was making a run over the top, and that was a lot of times Joao Felix, at least in the first half, they were like in a 1v3, a 1v3 or even a 1v4. So it was risky. This, this was extremely—I know it feels safe. In certain ways it was from Atletico Madrid. They're, they're playing safe by packing numbers behind the ball. But it was also risky because— if they didn't get forward, if they didn't get forward and they really didn't in this game, then you're just asking and waiting for City to break through you. So it was a really fine line for Atletico Madrid in this game. If De Bruyne doesn't score, we're probably talking about Atletico Madrid as this really innovative team in this game. But in reality, when you let that goal in, you're kind of kicking yourself for not being a little bit more aggressive. But even even with that, Ryan, to go back to your initial question to Graham... This game isn't over, and I do think Atletico Madrid deserve credit for how well they frustrated City and how well they compressed space throughout this game. Joe, I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on the changes that Simeone makes in the second half. And when that happens, I'm actually thinking I'm interested in what Joe thinks about this. <laughs> because <laughs> the, the, as much as I understand everything you're saying about they, need, they needed something in transition, generally speaking, the 5-5-0 was, was working well. And then Simeone takes off... Felix and, and uh, Griezmann puts on Cunha and, and Correa with Cunha as, uh, as the, as the centre forward. So they go into 4-5-1. I know you could argue that the tweak actually happens at half time when Griezmann goes into that 4-5-1. But it was when Cunha came on that it was really noticeable. And that change to my eye was was just enough to open up some space for City. And they, and they used that to open the scoring through De Bruyne when... Uh, Kondogbia steps out of the midfield line to press Foden and then Foden beats that press to play in De Bruyne and I do wonder if if, if City I can understand why Simeone makes that change but it felt like they contributed to their downfall a little bit and maybe they might have been better just sticking with the 5-5-0 and getting that 0-0 draw what, what, what did you make of that Joe? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't have, right? Atleti's shape went from a 5-3-2 at the start of this game, and it really was, then to that 5-5-0, and then it, it sort of ended in that 5-4-1, where Griezmann is down, and then he comes off, of course, and, and the subs make it look a little bit different. But Atleti do get a bit more aggressive around the 60th minute, and then they have to go for it after De Bruyne gets that goal, and so they have a few minutes at the end of this game to really try and get back into it. But even then, they've, they've got 20 minutes for that. Even then, they weren't hyper-aggressive or anything even even close to that. I don't have any real issue with making those those subs in terms of getting fresh legs on the field. I don't have any real issue in tweaking that defensive shape. If you can't try to deny space and if you can't try to close down the ball in a 5-4-1 and you need a 5-5-0 to do that, I think that that's a problem for your squad. So I think Diego Simeone was, was justified in trying to be a bit more aggressive because so many people would have been hammering him for it if, if he hadn't even tried. So this game and this entire match is... Just like a, a tactical philosophy seminar, right? Of City trying to win games by using the ball and having a lot of it. And Atletico Madrid t- trying to win games by letting you have the ball in really low-value spaces. And then trying to win it back and, and put the ball very quickly into high-value spaces. And it, it turns out that City's approach worked a little bit better in this game. And I don't know that it goes a whole lot deeper than that. Joe, I think I think you're really smart to, to call up that sort of tactical chess match uh, between the two managers, because in the lead up to this game, obviously, uh, there's the talking point about does Pep overthink? And he has the joke about how that he's going to play 12 men. <laughs> but I, but but I do think that there was an element here from Simeone's perspective of we're going to frustrate and we're going to see what they do. And when you have a triple change happening in the 60th minute exactly, that is a major sign to me that that is a pre-planned change. And I think the goal was to frustrate, invite City forward, not let them through. And if it's nil-nil in the 60th, we make these changes, we can be a bit more aggressive, we can play in that 5-4-1, and maybe we can make something happen and play upon that pressure and the sort of billing of City have to find a way through. Is Pep going to overthink? And with that in mind, I think it's a credit to Pep Guardiola and Man City that he makes very slight adjustments. He makes substitutions of his own. But I don't think they did things fundamentally differently from the first half to the second half, Man City. I think they backed themselves in 1v1s. They were a bit more aggressive with some of their passing. And then they backed themselves to get a win. And that's exactly how it played out. I think Atleti, for their part, did almost a perfect job of frustrating and nullifying City's attacking threats. It's just that one opportunity that uh, City is able to take. And they do. For Atleti, I like the idea that they never ended up getting a shot on target because I had in my notes that in the 51st minute, Marcos Llorente sort of cuts one back, has a lofted shot that is easily caught, and maybe I guess it ends up being deemed a cross. But I like that Atleti were so not adventurous that even the statistician said, we're not even giving you a shot on target. That one's not counting. And I think Man City's absolutely did, so it's a credit to Pep. I still think Simeone uh, did some smart things, and it's a credit to Atleti for just how good they were on the defensive side of the ball. Taylor, am I a Philistine for hating what Atleti did? Because I I understand it was very impressive. I understand they were very solid. I understand that Simeone did what he needed to do, and I've seen it described as a tactical masterclass and so on and so forth. But they just didn't play. It It was very practical and very functional. I get that. I'll tell you what, Taylor. They are the Colin Robinson of soccer. They, they sucked the soul <laughs> the out of this vampires. game, didn't they? They sucked everything out of this. And not just that, but the poop housery as well. When when Grealish came on and it was he was he was getting kicked left, right, and centre, they they clearly had a target on his back. And it just felt a bit you know, a bit negative and Mourinho esque, which I know that uh, Simeone has it in his locker. And do I do I feel dumb for for just not liking it and not appreciating what they're doing, Taylor? No, not at all. Because I think to each their own and uh, you are entirely entitled to want teams to play attacking soccer and for for it to be expansive and wide open, like I would say Chelsea Real Madrid was. Uh, I I think for me it's that Simeone has this just like Bielsa esque fighting spirit that does distinguish him a little bit from Jose Mourinho. It makes him that much more engaging of a figure. And and I just like the idea of a person looking at the kind of landscape of modern football and deciding they're going to do something differently. And I think that's how you get. Uh, innovations or evolution or uh, Darwin Nunez uh, in world soccer is by thinking, what happens if we uh, defend by possessing? And then you have Pep Guardiola and, and by, um, excuse me, in Barcelona with the Tiki Taka. And here, I think Diego Simeone looks at the landscape in La Liga, uh, especially when he is sort of uh, rounding into form with Atleti and thinks, I'm not going to try to compete in that way because we can't, but I can instill this fighting spirit and I can 
over-prepare for everything such that I know what uh, we need to do and how we're going to do it, but I also know what the opposition wants to do, and I know how to nullify that. We're recording uh, 101 about Sir Alex Ferguson later today, and there's so many anecdotes about how he would meet with the grounds crew to have them spend uh, special time or extra time in certain parts of the pitch so that that would remain playable because that was where United wanted to attack. And I think about that in relation to Diego Simeone, who I think would probably do that same level of preparation, both for his team, but also for the opposition. And then he would be the type of manager to tell his players, deliberately mess up that part of the field so they cannot attack down it. And there's an element of cynicism to that for sure. But to me, there's also just shrewdness there of taking away an opponent's strengths to force them to play on their weaknesses. And then you can capitalize upon them with effort, with energy, with discipline. And and so... Maybe it's because I myself am not the most disciplined of persons. I, I find what Simeone is able to get his guys to do that much more fascinating. One, one of the things I found most intriguing about this match is the way that Simeone and Guardiola are both completely different, but also exactly the same in terms yeah. of a lot of the things you, you <laughs> mentioned there, Taylor. The the preparation, so Simeone, we all know about the pressure, preparation he puts in, but there was a, an article in the, in the Athletic about how Guardiola told the the Manchester City ball boys and ball girls to uh, qu- get the ball quickly to to uh, the Atletico Madrid players when they were taking throw-ins and set pieces because obviously Guardiola had watched what Atleti had done against Manchester United when they were very naive in the round of 16 and he, he videoed a short video message for the ball kids before the game and he made it all about you're part of this team, you're part of the strategy and that was just to eliminate Atletico Madrid uh, time wasting and that sort of preparation you get from Guardiola and you get from Simeone as well and they both have that intensity and they both have uh, the kind of father figure qualities but also the fear factor in the dressing room talking about Sir Alex Ferguson I think that's something that's going to come up in the 101 episode as well so they're, they're both they're, they're, they're two sides of the same co- same coin for me and I, I found that I found that really interesting in this match to watch those two teams and and the contrast between them but also the things that kind of unite them as well and even even tactically Graham they're they're two sides of the same coin they're opposite sides and they they both this is what I think made this game so frustrating to watch at times Ryan both teams are so confident in what they want to do and they execute it so well. That it's it's like the what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, and for parts of this game, it was just a boring game. Like that's what happens when those two things meet. Atletico Madrid defend really, really deep. They are like all the way down on one side of the tactical spectrum. In City are all the way on the other side of the tactical spectrum, and neither team made all that many mistakes. And when that happens, I think the advantage goes to the the more defensive team. But when a mistake finally happens and you get a center back pulled out and Phil Foden uh, draws them out and then plays Kevin De Bruyne in behind, that's when you get those magical little moments in soccer. Soccer is so entertaining, and we'll talk about this with the Chelsea-Real Madrid game. It's entertaining when there's mistakes, and there just weren't that many mistakes in this game. And finally, when you get one, I think that's when things start to become a bit more entertaining. There's a really nice quote from Guardiola from a few years ago that I thought was really applicable during this game. And the quote is, uh, my team defend big spaces and attack small spaces. Other teams attack big spaces and defend small spaces. And I thought that was a good way of reflecting how this match was because obviously City are the former and Atleti are the latter. Yeah. Graham, that's that's a great poll because I do think that's the difference in this game. That's where the goal comes from. Phil Foden comes on. I do think when you have the the uh, unstoppable force meets an immovable object to back up just a little bit, Joe, I think that's a great way to summarize this game. And I think what ended up happening was that City didn't want to get caught. They didn't want to get caught out and leave themselves vulnerable to counterattack. So they kept the ball moving and they would probe and they would take their shots. But I don't think that they were really pushing it to that next level and rolling the dice a little bit. And I think in the second half, they were. I think they backed themselves to, to take on Atleti players 1v1 because Atletico's entire game plan seemed to be Keep your defensive shape. When the ball goes wide, one defender pops out. He doesn't overcommit. He he closes down. He slows down the play and either forces City back or more numbers come over. Then you suffocate. Then you win the ball back. And I think that's what they were doing. And it required individual efforts, individual moments to break through. Or it required Man City to isolate those small pockets of space and then find a way to exploit them. That's where the goal happens is Phil Foden receives the ball in maybe a five-yard pocket of space, receives it on the, the turn, plays it forward, and one touch later, it's in the back of the net, courtesy of Kevin De Bruyne. It's those little moments that you have to take that you have to kind of play into. And I think City 
pushed it to that next level. They kicked it to 11. And I think Atleti stayed at a 10 out of 10. But when you have that plus one difference, in the end, it's 1-0. Yeah. Um, Taylor, Atleti, I think at the start of the night, would have taken a 1-0 loss in this game for sure. So my final question here is, what do you think happens in the second leg? Do Atleti go for it a little bit more, maybe leave a bit more space for City to exploit. And in terms of what Pep does, we saw no Foden or Grealish starting here, Nathan Arke at left back, um, was it Silver at Force 9, I think it was at the start. Yeah. Does Pep overthink the second leg as well? So a two-parter for you. I mean, I'm just going to keep referencing Joe Lowry. I think he said it well. I think City are going to do what they're going to do. Atleti's going to do what they do. Uh, I I think we've seen a different Atleti at times this season, but ultimately I won't be surprised if the first 15 minutes is 75% possession for Man City, if I can eventually say that. Um, I think it will be more of the same, but I think it will be obviously incumbent upon Atleti to find a way through to make something happen. So I don't think that they can sit in nearly as much as they did in this game, but I think they'll be defensive. I think that they will be deeper. I don't think they'll have dominant possession or anything like that because trying to play that game, you're not going to be able to out Man City, Man City. You're going to end up getting destroyed. So you have to find a way to keep that defensive foundation but still take those moments to attack I mean look at Villarreal as a blueprint I would say that's pretty much their entire game plan against Bayern Munich I don't know if City's back line is as frail as Bayern Munich's but I think there's opportunities there if you can get them extended or if you can just make them uncomfortable with the the counter-attacking play I think it's going to be more of a dull game but I also won't be surprised to your point Ryan if Atleti were okay with a 1-0 loss here to get a 1-0 win at home yeah Okay, Man City 1, Atleti 0. Man City have the edge going into next week. Uh, We shall see what happens there. We're going to take a very quick break when we come back. Liverpool's adventure in Portugal. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Benfica 1, Liverpool 3. The result we basically thought would happen did happen i think here it was liverpool's record fifth straight away win in the champions league um uh, money and diaz with the goals who was the first goal i'm blanking on it it was it was canati it was canati that's right rare rare prince a rare goal for him as well and darwin nunes for benfica getting um almost getting the recovery Woo-hoo. with the two one yeah <laughs> cheer that one graham um but diaz of course on his repur- uh, return to portugal snuffing that one out he's got some history with benfica fair to say um graham benfica 15 points off the pace domestically not quite at the Liverpool level but of course they did you know beat Ajax to get here and um, hey. they did some business over Bar. <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry Joe this is my business over Barcelona in the groups as well did this one play out how you thought it would Graham yeah it did um I just think there's such a big talent advantage between these these two teams obviously as you say Benfica did a really good job of seeing off Ajax in the round of 16 but if we cast our mind back to that second leg in particular if Ajax play that again that game again uh they, they probably win that game it, it felt like a lot of things fell in Benfica's favor so I think that as I say the talent advantage was pretty big I was also very confused by the high line that Benfica decided they wanted to play against the team in Europe you probably don't want to play a high line against. It was a, it was a factor for Manny's goal where uh, Alexander-Arnold finds Diaz with this incredible ball over, over the top. But nonetheless, there is a lot of uh, a lot of space for him to, to aim at. And once Diaz and Manny get in behind, there's no way that Benfica are, are, are getting back. And it happened again for the third goal where uh, Diaz is played in behind and he just has so much time to, to, to round the goalkeeper and finish. And I understand that comes from... Uh, Nabi Keita kind of winning the ball high up the pitch, but the high line is is right in front of him and he's, it's a, quite a simple pass for him to play in behind. And I, I think the truth is that Vertonghen and Nicolas Otamendi, who were the, the centre-backs for Benfica in this game, 
they just don't have the the speed to make that sort of line work, particularly up against players like Diaz and, and Mane and Salah, who started this as the front three for, for Liverpool. And in contrast, the Liverpool pairing of Kanati and Van Dijk, because obviously Liverpool play a high line uh, famously and have done so for the last few years, they, they show how to make that high line work, where their, their physical attributes mean they, they cover so much ground. If they ever end up in trouble facing their own goal, they've got a good chance of getting back, making ball recoveries. And Vertonghen and Otamendi just don't have those qualities. So I, th- I think even if Benfica hadn't played such a high line, they, they probably end up losing this game. But that certainly didn't seem to help them in any sense. Yeah, Taylor, I think that was one of the standouts for me, the, the comparison to the centre-backs there and just the, the amount of depth that Liverpool have at centre-back as well. Can I say, not necessarily a starter, you know, coming in and, and doing that. Good stuff. I mean, yeah, aside from his inability to clear a ball for the uh, Benfica <laughs> yeah, goal. Yes, very Fair. good stuff from Konate. And it was in a lot of ways, like almost unfair at times of when I was watching this game, just to see how Benfica, I think, were willing to be defensive, try to play on the counter, try to use that speed, and basically punish Liverpool for being aggressive. And there were times when it seemed like they were going to be able to play through, but then those two center backs are so quick, so good at reacting to situations, and we've talked about it many times with Virgil van Dijk, so good at splitting the difference in a 2v1 and sort of closing down the person on the ball, but never letting that obvious passing opportunity develop. And so in the end, it's oftentimes Virgil van Dijk wins the ball cleanly or pokes it away for a throw in or makes the attacker cut back. But having those two defenders there who can play so well and do so much on their own, it lets Liverpool gamble. It lets them send numbers forward. And I thought that was kind of the key to this game was Liverpool having defenders who were anything but turtles to continue to continue the Darwin analogy. <laughs> Very nice indeed. Uh, Joe, Darwin Nunes got the goal, as we mentioned, um, with the assist from the air between Canati's legs, of course. Um, what did you make of him? What did you make of Benfica? Benfica were not very good in this game. Graham, you're talking about that high line. I don't I don't think that was at all part of the tactical plan for Benfica in this game. I just think they got cut out too much in transition. That that Mane goal, you kind of talked about Cato winning the ball on the, the third one that Diaz scores in the 87th. The Mane goal, Liverpool is just pressing. And then at that point, they win the ball high up the field. Well, actually, they don't win it that high up the field. They win it in midfield as with Konate. And then Benfica are, are all out of whack. They're not set, and so they're a little scrambled and, and out of position defensively. They they weren't particularly disciplined in some of those ways. They tried to do, Benfica tried to do some good things to shadow Fabinho, but Liverpool was super fluid in midfield um, with, with Keita and Thiago as well. And so they didn't have a ton of success with that. And Liverpool, for their part, were just beautiful with little combination plays between Salah and Mane, who was playing the nine, or between uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Salah on the right, or Andy Robertson and Diaz on the left. Both both sides had like a lovely little back heel. And I'll get to Nunes in just a minute, sorry. They had a lovely little back heel. There's an unreal one in the ninth minute between Salah and Mane. It's Salah to Mane with his back to goal, and then Mane back heels it to Salah, who chases the ball down in the box and gets a corner. And then Diaz and, and Robertson have a very similar moment in the 44th minute. Just so much good textbook combination play to break through Benfica's low block, which is what it was for a lot of this game from Benfica, and I think understandably so. So yeah, Liverpool, phenomenal. I think we we all agree on that. As far as Darwin Nunez go, goes, he is he's really, really good. His build and his speed and transition, his, his ability to move into the channels and progress the ball in the dribble or to make a, a dangerous run in the box, and he scores that goal. And it, it is a gift from Kanate. But, I mean, it's, it's a nice run and bit of movement from him to get into an attacking space in the 49th minute to get on the end of that Rafa Silva ball. I like a lot of what he does. And throughout this competition, I think about it, especially with Leo, you know, you, you watch Jonathan David and you watch Renato Sanchez, who, of course, is a, a pretty household name, or at least he was before. Maybe he's faded a little bit into the background since leaving Bayern. But it's it's fun to look for players, and I guess Anthony falls into this category as well, who are still, like, really high-profile players at their very large clubs, but they're not playing for, a you know, a top eight European side with oil money, right? And and it's kind of sad that that's the, the range we have to go to here. But Darwin Nunez, I think, is a contender to make a move along with Sanchez, along along with Jonathan David, along with Anthony, not just because of, of what is being reported, and that, of course, is a massive part of this, but because of talent. I think he's a really good forward. I think he would fit exceptionally well in a lot of different two forward fronts. That's what he plays for Benfica most often with Ramos alongside of him a little deeper. But because of how rangy he is, maybe he could even fit uh, for a team that plays a 4-2-3-1, and we see this with Holland at Dortmund a lot. 
where he's making those runs into the left half space and getting the ball on his left foot and shooting. Nunez doesn't have that same level of predictability, and that's not a bad thing for Holland because he can do that so, so well. He's a little more varied in how he approaches things, but he's lanky, he's quick, he's good on the ball, he's a really, really good striker. I just can't believe Uruguay have produced another <laughs> like world-class forward. Yeah. If you go back like the last 10 years, Diego Forlan, Luis Suarez, Edison Cavani, now Darwin Nunes. The USMNT just wants one. Just one number nine, please. Uh, we'll do, do the US. Uruguay seem to just produce them for fun without even yeah. trying. And the US is playing Uruguay twice in June, apparently, according to reports. Not once, but, but twice. So maybe they'll have a chance to steal Darwin Nunez. I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Joe, there. is that I have what? to say... If I could have something professionally removed from my brain, I would love to have the little factoid that you dropped that Jonathan David was born in New York removed. Because <laughs> now every time I think of him, I'm just like, oh, cool. What could have been? That could be yep. fun. That yep. could be fun. Thanks for that, Joe. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, I didn't report that, but I, I, I guess I was the first one to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you were. You were. You blew my mind on that one. I, I like for Moving away from that, because I'll get too sad, <laughs> I, I'm going to go uh, poetic here for a moment. Like, playing against Liverpool, to me, is like building a sandcastle at low tide and then just trying to, like, frantically fight as high tide comes in. Because it's just relentless and it hits you over and over again. And it felt like every time Benfica thought they'd plugged a hole, thought they'd reinforce somewhere, Liverpool attacked on the other side or through the middle or overloaded that same side. And I don't know how you beat this team. Because if you let them start to get any level of momentum, they just keep going and growing and getting stronger and playing into their levels of confidence that usually mean they're going to get a result. I I remain convinced that we're going to see Liverpool and Man City uh, in the final. We'll see if that ends up being the case because Real Madrid seem like they're intent to make an argument uh, for themselves. But I, I thought this was as impressive of a victory from Liverpool as we've seen in recent months just yeah. because they went out and did their thing and it was just so sort of routine in the end. Yeah, and, and even the areas where Liverpool might have been weaker in the past, so I always think under Klopp, the midfield seems to get a lot of scrutiny. Well, at the moment, it feels like Thiago and, and Naby Keita are playing very well at the, at right now yep. as well. I think Naby Keita, in particular, we're starting to see him become the player Liverpool thought he was going to be in, in, in the first place. He, uh, he, he, as I mentioned earlier, he played a key role in creating opportunity for the, the third goal. He's the one who pounces on the loose pass by Otamendi, plays it in behind. And that's ex- that's exactly the sort of thing that Keita did for RB Leipzig when he was there. That uh, proactive nature is something new for Liverpool that he brings to, to, that, to that midfield. And if you look at his stats here um, in this game, no player on either team had more touches than Keita, 106. He completed 72 of his 78 passes, 92%. He made five tackles as well. And I think his partnership with uh, Thiago Alcantara in, in the middle, and I think having Thiago as the controller and Keita as the go-between and the one pressing high from midfield, it makes uh, makes a lot of sense. Incidentally, this was actually the first time that Thiago and, and Naby Keita played together, in the, or sorry, started together in, in the same Liverpool team. So I just wonder if we're going to see that pairing more and more between now and the end of the season with Fabinho as the, as the anchor. Um, Liverpool playing Man City this Sunday in the Premier League. Lest we forget, uh, the Total Soccer Show boys are doing some special shows on the BR Football app before and after that game. Uh, Joe, if you want to access the BR Football app, I think you just go and download the BR Football app. Did I explain that well enough? I think you did that really well. It is just the BR app, so I guess maybe that's one point of criticism. But, oh, you know, Ryan, they get the idea. Huh. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm old, <laughs> as in, in case you didn't notice. Yeah, boomer. <laughs> See you at the show on Sunday, Graham. Uh, in the meantime, um, yeah, that was uh, Benfica 1, Liverpool 3. Maybe that one might be over. Possibly the same thing for another 3-1 that happened on Wednesday evening. Uh, Chelsea 1, Real Madrid 3 for this one. Chelsea giving away goals just like they did against Brentford here. Karim Benzema stealing the show with a hat-trick. Uh, Kai Havertz getting a header. Looked that it might have had the Blues back in this one before half-time. But then Edouard Mendy did an Edouard Mendy error to make it 3-1 and put this this fixture, at least, out of reach. Uh, Joe, what did Chelsea do wrong here apart from having absolutely no shape when they didn't have the ball? 
Yeah, let's start there, Ryan, shall we? Because I think Chelsea's pressing structure in this game just about did them in. And you can see that on, on both of the first two goals for Real Madrid that are, are beautiful goals. So many wonderful goals and goal sequences in this game. Maybe we take out the Mendy blunder, and, and Rudiger certainly didn't cover himself in glory either when they, they lose the ball, and it's Karim Benzema who goes and scores quite easily to cap this one off for Real Madrid. But so many nice goals. The first two come off of long passing sequences from Real Madrid that start in their own half, or at least go through their own half and, and deep in their own half at that, into their final third and, and near the goal as well. Chelsea are, are in this 3-4-3 shape in possession that we've come to expect from Thomas Tuchel and this Chelsea team, with Mount and Christian Pulisic underneath Kai Havertz, and you've got Azpilicueta at left wing back and Reese James at right wing back. Then you've got your double pivot of Jorginho and Kante and then the back three. It's a standard shape from them. When they high-pressed, uh, a lot of the times in this game, it went to more of a 4-2-3-1 with Mount moving in from the right wing to the number 10 spot and, and Reese James moving up high up the field to cover and then it all kind of just shifts. And so you're looking at more of a standard 4-2-3-1 with Azpilicueta on the far side becoming a left back. They're trying to press in this way with Mount and sometimes Kai Havertz on Casemiro. And that's that's all well and good, but for Real Madrid, it wasn't just Casemiro in central midfield. It was Casemiro and Tony Cruz in central mm-hmm. midfield. And over and over again, Chelsea was getting ripped apart, and you could see it on those two goals, where either Casemiro picks up the ball in open space, I believe that's the second one, and he's a key part of that build, or the first goal where he picks up the ball, Casemiro, on the right side and switches to a wide-open Tony Cruz. It's a hard pass, and he has to fire it and, and play a kind of weird ball into Tony Kroos, who's who's on Maybe the, the center vertical strip of the field maybe shaded slightly towards the left. And he makes that pass, and Tony Kroos has ages t- to move the ball forward, and he's in plenty of space to do what he does. I, I think it was that pressing structure and their lack of, of real adaptability in that first half to see the mistakes and change and, and adjust their structure from Chelsea. That just about did them in in this game. And when you couple that with having Azpilicueta and Reese James as your wingbacks, Azpilicueta on the left, I, I might add, he's right-footed, you know, that's not a look we see very often, and those two players aren't necessarily really attacking players. Like, they're not dynamic presences, presence eyes, presences at wingback. They, they just don't bring a ton, and we do see, actually, contrary to what I said, Reese James get involved in the in the Kai Havertz goal. He has a nice dribble on that right side, but I, I just don't think you're afraid of those players at wingback, and you're not really afraid of Chelsea's attack in a lot of different ways in this game if you're Real Madrid. So, lots, I think lots went wrong with Chelsea, especially in that defensive structure, but man, also credit to Madrid for being so lethal and so incredibly entertaining and effective on the ball in this game. Yeah, definitely. T- Taylor, for me, this was similar to the Brentford game in that there was just, or maybe I'll call it a lack of discipline at the back, a lack of organisation at the back. And it was Thiago Silva, who I mentioned at the top of the show, who didn't have a good day. Um, for the opening goal, he seemed to run with Vinicius when Vinicius was already being covered by Christensen and left loads of room for the most dangerous player on the field to have at it. The second goal, I think he gave too much space to Benzema in a build-up that Thiago Silva did and sort of, you know, once again looking for Vinicius who was already covered in the third goal with Mendy. Um, what happened there, you know, maybe Rudiger didn't cover himself in glory there as well, getting to the ball first, arguably ahead of Benzema, who's just so dangerous in situations like that. But take the, the defending once again. When Tuchel was asked after the game, he just basically shrugged his shoulders. He was like, I don't know what's going on here. This is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think said, we're out of this tie. There's no way back for us from this one. We have to figure out why we're conceding so many goals. And I would say, at least for me, watching this game from my living room, uh, it felt like one possible explanation would just be panic. That I think Chelsea, as Joe said, started this game in a very strong position, were very aggressive, went at Real Madrid, left themselves open to the counter, but I think they were trying to take the game to Real. And so when Madrid suddenly are able to kind of ping them back so quickly and and, and in rapid succession at that, it seemed as though there was just a panic from Chelsea, similar to what we saw for PSG earlier in the season. The the biggest example of this one uh, in the 29th minute is just Madrid just go over the top. They go for a long ball and Reese James is there. He doesn't have much pressure. He's going for a header back to Mendy and there is rain so maybe that's part of this but it's not a lot of pressure it's not like he's being contested and has to make a scrambling play he just heads it out of bounds for a corner and he's clearly aiming for Mendy and then and then there's just a sort of like meek hand in the air there's not a lot of like yelling at him everybody just kind of walks back into their positions to defend the corner and right there it did feel to me like this game could be five nil it's a credit to Chelsea that they end up pulling the one back and it's a good goal by Havertz Uh, and Reese James involved in that one so maybe he redeems himself slightly but I, I just couldn't get over how Madrid just looked comfortable 
And and that changes a little bit in the second half, I think, because they get tired. It's the same Madrid team we've seen many times and a veteran team at that. I think Tuchel makes some smart changes to try to emphasize those tired legs. But in the end, it's not enough. And I think Madrid really looked comfortable for most of this game. And watching it while I was also watching Bayern Munich fail to win against Villarreal, it just stood out how much an older, more veteran Madrid team looked tired by the end, but also looked like they had that ability to just be like, we've been here before. We know how to find a way through. We're going to find a way through. Carlo Ancelotti seems very much relaxed as always. I don't think he is the one screaming on the sidelines and demanding performances. I think he's backing his players to make it happen. And he has the caliber of players with the profile behind them to be able to make it happen. And in the end, you have a 3-1 win for Madrid. At at the same time that Real Madrid were winning this game with Ancelotti on the sidelines, uh, Everton were losing to Burnley at Turf Moor to move within one point of the bottom three in the Premier League. I'm... Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Ancelotti is pleased he got out of that mess and he enjoyed a Champions League quarterfinal win more than a defeat at Turf Moor. How the turntables, Graham, indeed. <laughs> uh, Graham, perhaps we can make, or perhaps there is a juxtaposition we can make between Benzema and Lukaku here as well. Benzema being a player who's just producing at such a high level at the moment, who's had so much faith in him for over a decade at Real Madrid. And you can see the confidence he has. It oozes from his pores. And then you come to Lukaku, who had a, pretty much a free header around the 70th minute and the sort of header you really should put on target if you are a player of his caliber and it just to me it shows that he's not got faith and he's not starting games he's not got the backing that someone like Benzema has and they're not you know he's the kind of player who needs to be playing every week to have a team a team almost built around him at the front yeah I, to be honest I'm a, I'm a bit of a loss to explain what's happened with Lukaku this season because I was pretty sure he was going to be a big success going back for Chelsea we'd all seen how successful he had been at Inter and how Antonio Conte had used him and it felt like Tuchel had would have an understanding of how to get the best out of him I think the days of not knowing what Lukaku does best are, are gone we all know that he likes the ball to feet you probably don't want to hit him with long balls you want to get him turned and running towards goal and a lot of those things Kai Havertz is doing for Chelsea it just seems like he's doing it he's doing it better for Chelsea at the moment and a lot of the things Benzema I don't think Lukaku is technically as 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 gifted as as Benzema is but when you see Benzema dropping deep he does this for both goals actually the first two goals sorry I should say that he scores um he drops deep he plays a pass to a teammate very quickly and then he he spins in behind and he's and he's on his bike and he's he's surging into the box those are those are the sort of things we did see from Lukaku for for Inter last season so i think there is an element of chelsea not playing to lukaku's strengths but not to the extent that he shouldn't be able to offer anything at all which is kind of the 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 stage he's at right now as you say Ryan he comes on in the, in the second half off the bench for Chelsea has that golden opportunity a free header about 10 yards out and completely squaffs the header wide wide of the target so it, you're right a lot of that I think is down to confidence a lot of it is down to Tuchel not playing to his to his strengths as well and it's become a bit of a mess for Lukaku to be honest as I say um I can't fully explain it, but it, it kind of feel like, feels like he needs to get out of there already, and I, I didn't see that coming at all at the start of the season. If only they could sell him. Can they? I don't think they can yet, can they? Hmm, <laughs> no, and, and, and Chelsea had Timo Werner on the bench as well, so I, what, what did those two cost combined? <laughs> About £150 million pounds yeah. of strikers on the bench for this game? Hmm. Not great. Yeah, not great. Um, Graham, one uh, one more thing for you. Um, you've mentioned Fede Valverde on the on our show notes here. Uh, the highlight, one of the highlights for me was Valverde crashing into Ancelotti on the sidelines. I think it was in the second half, and Ancelotti dramatically going down. And I felt bad laughing because he he's he's sixty two and he's yeah he's an old man. He's, he, <laughs> he's quite an old he man. He injured his knee a few times back in the day, but then I just saw that, and then Bale coming on for Valverde very not long afterwards. I was like. Was that Ancelotti saying, I'll show you for crashing into me? But at the same time, Valverde had a good game. <laughs> he did, indeed. And we we spoke in detail about how Ancelotti got things badly wrong in the Clasico not so long ago with his team selection and his general approach to that match. Well, I think he deserves a lot of credit for the role he played in, in this one with regards to Fede Valverde. Um, his his decision to, to use him in a sort of hybrid midfield attacking role was was very important important for Real Madrid. On paper, he was on the, the right side of the front three 
and this is always seen as the the one place in Real Madrid team where they where they have a you know a, a free place. You could have Marco Sensio, Marco Sensio, Rodrigo, Gareth Bale, as you mentioned, there comes on in the second half, and Valverde was a bit of a bit of a surprise choice because by trade he is a he's a central midfielder, but his his work rate to uh, help out defensively that kind of helped keep the right side of Chelsea's team in check, and and then his ability on both sides of the ball to, to, to carry the ball forwards helped Real Madrid in transition where they obviously did a lot of a lot of damage in this game and, and I felt he gave Real Madrid that extra security that they maybe lacked in the in I was thinking back to the PSG game and that obviously Real Madrid lose that first leg against uh, PSG and he just gave them extra security in contrast to, to that game. They didn't have that in that match. But it didn't come at the cost of threat as in transition and um yeah, I just I, I felt like it was another performance. He's he's played well recently, Fede Valverde for Real Madrid, and I think that adaptability, adaptability and versatility is something that Ancelotti really likes and also knows how to use as well. Joe, on nights like this, Real Madrid are pretty unimpeachable, aren't they? Um, wonderful performance from them, but you know, just two weeks ago they were destroyed by Barcelona in a yeah. Clasico and, and written off. So, what happens next week? Do you see? Do you agree with Tuchel that this one's over? Do you think there's any way back for Chelsea when they go to Spain? I think there is a chance, but I think Tuchel's probably right that this one is pretty over. Real Madrid getting a two-goal lead going into that home leg. I don't expect Chelsea to come back in that game, especially with some of their the struggles that they showed, the issues they showed in this game and, and over the weekend as well after the international break. I don't think that Chelsea are flying high right now, but I am certainly not sold. I think there's a, a segment of the population that is all in on Madrid after this game, and I think that is very foolish after a Clasico and after how bad they were for a lot of that tie against PSG. Uh, the first game was was really poor from them, and Mbappe gets a goal, and the second one was was certainly better, but I am not sold on this team. It's a lot of still vibes and and weird rotations at times from Ancelotti, and it, it did work in this game, and I think Graham just detailed a lot of that quite well. But I am not sold on Real Madrid. I know you didn't ask me this, to win this competition, just like I haven't been earlier on in, in this competition, but certainly a, a really entertaining and an energetic performance from them in this game. Taylor, do you agree with that? What if what if Chelsea bring in Roberto Di Matteo next week, and will that be enough for them to go all the way? It's worked for them before. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, any anytime anything seems to go slightly wrong, you bring in a new manager, everything will work out just fine. That should be fine for Chelsea. <laughs> I do think Madrid will be able to get by them. I think it will end up being probably a better, closer game overall. But I think everything Joe said is still correct, that this does seem to be a team that relies, again, on their sort of chemistry, on the number of games, the number of reps they have together, and then an experienced manager in Carlo Ancelotti, but a manager in Carlo Ancelotti that we know isn't all about the, like, intricacies of tactics it's not to say that he kind of remove moves away from them entirely but I don't think he is drilling and prepping the way say Diego Simeone might be or Pep Guardiola or even Julian Nagelsmann so I think they may well be able to get by Chelsea uh, in the return leg but I think uh, against uh, stronger opposition I won't say it's going to go the way the, the Clasico went but I think it's going to be a tough task for Real Madrid indeed might be tough Taylor if they face Villarreal in the next round as well. That could happen in the semis, couldn't it? More on Villarreal very shortly after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about the remaining Champions League quarterfinal first leg. Villarreal won Bayern Munich nil. Is that right? Did I write that down correctly? Goodness me. Arno Dunjuma with a decisive goal in this one. Uh, and Taylor, it seemed like this could have been maybe 3-0, maybe 4-0. Uh, Bayern Munich suffering their first Champions League defeat away from home since 2017, which is a big stat in itself. But Villarreal putting on quite the performance, dominating, you could say. Maybe not in terms of all the stats, but in terms of the flow of the game, Taylor? I would say so. I, and I think in terms of like clear-cut opportunities as well, Bayern, it started to be one of those games where in the 70th minute or so, it just felt like they're not going to score. And even at the very end, Kingsley Coleman, I believe it is, darts in at the back post and has sort of a first-time opportunity that he hits right at the goalkeeper. And it just didn't seem like Bayern Munich were really up for this one or as controlled as they needed to be. And contrasting with that, I mean, Villarreal go up 1-0. They went up 2-0 briefly when the Coquelin cross-turned shot drops into the far side netting, but he's offside by about six inches. But I really do have in my notes, like, should have been 2-0, could have been 2-0, probably should have been 2-0 again. Uh, Joe, I know you don't love that type of phrasing, uh, but the number of attacks Villarreal had, it, it started to feel to me like they, even they were a little bit confused. Like, we're playing Bayern Munich. They're the ones who are supposed <laughs> to be scoring goals. We can't get really far ahead in this one. That's not allowed. Maybe they didn't want to poke the bear too much. But there were just missed opportunities for Villarreal such that they may really end up ruining the way this played out because there's the very late chance for Pedraza on the break. I think Gio Celso deserves so much credit for facilitating attacking play, keeping uh, moments alive, keeping moves alive. And here was one where it seemed for sure like it was going to be 2-0 and then Pedraza just skies it and hits it wide at the same time, which is no small feat given that he was like six yards out. I think Villarreal could end up being frustrated if in the second leg they maybe fall behind 2-0 and then that's all she wrote. Indeed. Uh, Joe, the XG was slightly in favor of Villarreal here. That seems like something that would excite and impress you. It, it does. It also serves to remind us all that scoring goals is hard and that Villarreal, Taylor, I hear what you're saying, and they did have a really good number of chances in this game. Scoring three or four would have been maybe a miracle, a minor miracle for Villarreal in this game. They were good and they were better than Bayern, which is really impressive. And, and it is partially illustrated, Ryan, by that XG advantage they have in this game. I was incredibly impressed with this team. I, I've i never seen a team set up quite like Villarreal did, and, and maybe more on that in just a second, but my, my friendship, and I know uh, Ajax is done in this competition, my friendship with Ajax has ended, temporarily at least. Villarreal is my new best friend in this competition because of the things they did in this game. I, I haven't seen some of the tactical stuff that Emery pulled out of his back pocket in this game ever before. So defensively, they're in this 4-4-2, 4-4-2 diamond shape, depending on the moment, with Danny Parejo stepping forward from midfield in the press and had stepped to Kimmich a lot in this game. That wasn't rocket science. In possession, though, 
it was a very interesting take on a 4-2-2-2, right? So that back four, the central midfield two, the two wide midfielders tucking in as as central attacking midfielders, that's standard stuff. Like, you know, we've seen Salzburg do that a hundred times before. It's a Red Bull thing to do. PSV does it a bunch under Roger Schmidt. I mean, this isn't rocket science. The one thing, though, that was different that I had not seen is instead of, so you got the, the midfield two deep in midfield as that double pivot, you have the two central attacking midfielders just ahead and a little bit wider than those those midfield two. And then instead of the two attackers being central and having a ton of numbers stacked in the middle channel of the field, in this game, the forwards were wide. Like like the two strikers, Moreno and Danjuma, were wide, like at times with their heels on the chalk on, on the outside portion of the field. I'd never seen that before. And it, and it wasn't just like, a, oh, that's a, a funny little wrinkle. I wonder, you know, if that's going to impact the game at all. It actually changed this game. It changed this entire game because over and over again, Villarreal were breaking down the wings using that exact positioning. It was the strikers, Moreno and Danjuma, drawing uh, Bayern Munich's fullbacks out. In this game, it was Pavard and Davies. And you could it was great to see Davies back. You could sort of tell that he hadn't played a game since December. They were drawing the fullbacks out or even sometimes the center backs out. And then the central attacking midfielders, especially with Celso on that right side, would run in behind. And that's exactly what happened on Danjuma's goal. Moreno pulls Davies out. Celso runs in behind and cuts it back. And, and there's a, a goal from that sequence. And the goal that was disallowed as well. Taylor, you talked about that, the, the six-inch offside. In the first half, it also included that pattern. It was Moreno receiving on the right wing. He then switches play to the left side. So so wide on the right, he then switches play to the left. And that's where the, the goal comes from before it's disallowed. Even when the strikers weren't all the way wide for Villarreal, they had such good, sharp rotations in those wide areas. The strikers and the central attacking midfielders and the fullbacks really understood each other and moved in sync almost to perfection in this game. Good spacing across the vertical channels, consistent runs in behind to threaten Bayern Munich in their high line. Just such a good and creative attacking performance. I'm sure this positional alignment has been used before, but man, I'd, I'd never seen it, and I thought it was just a blast. Graham, um, we mentioned Lacelso and what a good game he had here. Can you remind us why Spurs let it go? <laughs> yeah, when when you watch this sort of performance from Lacelso, where he's just so dynamic and offering so much in terms of smart use of the ball and a lot of coverage, you kind of think, is he the perfect Conte midfielder? <laughs> uh, so it's 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 slightly strange that he has been loaned out to Villarreal, but he has been exceptional since going to Villarreal on loan from, from Spurs in, in January. Um, as you say, he was brilliant uh, here. He was brilliant against Juventus in the round of 16 as well. And I just felt like everything Villarreal did well flowed through him, his decision-making was was so sharp. If you look at the chance that he puts on a plate for Pedraza late on in the game where he where he has a, he kind of slices a shot wide of the target, he waits to to draw the Bayern defender on, on the break, waits for that opportunity. And, and it is simple, you know, it looks pretty simple to do, but it's, that, that was just the clarity of thought that he was, he was having. He then lays a perfectly weighted pass to Pedraza who really, um, you know, should do a lot better with with that opportunity. But um, it just felt like Bayern Munich didn't like having Lacelso driving at them at any time during the game through the central areas when he would drift out wide as well. They didn't really know whether to, to follow him. And um, if you can bypass the, the Bayern Munich midfield, if you can beat their high press, the their defence has been pretty shaky recently. And it was shaky in this game. And Villarreal are just the latest team to expose that. I still expect Bayern to go through on this in, in this tie, given they've got a home leg to, to come. But away from home, they certainly are have been pretty vulnerable in 2022. And we have seen, maybe not to this extent, where Villarreal were fairly dominant in this game, but we have seen a number of matches of this type from them this year. So some questions for, uh, for Nagelsmann at the moment. Questions indeed. Taylor, the big question for me, for you, how far can Villarreal go? What happens? in Bavaria next week with this one. Does it seem likely they can hold on? I mean, they were admirable in this game because they, did, they didn't try and Simeone it out and once they took the lead. They kept going here. Maybe they won't be so cavalier uh, in Bavaria in any in any respect. So what do you think? How, do, how does this one play out next week? Yeah, I feel, I feel bad saying this because basically I think Bayern Munich will end up winning. Uh, and I don't want to discredit anything that Villarreal did because I think they were immense in this game for everything Joe and Graham have already said. I, I just think that Bayern Munich have proven time and time again that they will find a way to respond. Julian Nagelsmann, I think, does well under pressure. He talked about that in the post-match interview and how he 
He's uh, impervious to burnout, I think was his phrasing. So I think he's going to spend this week coming up with a plan for how to nullify what Villarreal want to do. I think Bayern Munich will be a little bit sharper when next we see them because there was a lot of sloppiness in this one from them. And I think ultimately they will find a way through. You never know if they come out lacking that sharpness, if they don't have the response you need. VRL have obviously shown themselves capable of scoring goals, of going far in this Champions League knockout round. But I, I do think in the end, some of those missed chances are going to come back to hurt them. Indeed. Uh, Joe, one final note from me. Your, fr- your friendship with Ajax has ended. You, you're going to make friends again one day, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, and hopefully with Ajax again next next Champions League. I don't want to distance themselves. I don't want to distance myself from them forever. But if if Ten Hag is going to Manchester United, as it seems like is happening, maybe it won't be the same Ajax team. There, there's some uncertainty there. Hopefully, we can mend our our bond. Relationship status, it's complicated. It is complicated, Graham. <laughs> Amen. Uh, what I'm hearing is Joe wants Frank DeBoer in at Ajax. Let's make that happen. Yikes! <laughs> I'm, it's worked before, hasn't it? Oh. It did, yeah. It did. It's it, the only time it's ever worked with Frank De Boer. <laughs> yeah. Let's be fair to at least one of the De Boers there. Uh, thank you very much, gents. I think that rounds up our Champions League roundup. So for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you, my friend. Uh, Graham Ruthen, a pleasure as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, I'm ready to talk about my cat now. I had two cats when I was growing up. Lucy and Linus, they were named after Charlie Brown characters. One of them wasn't very good with road safety. There you go. Mm. You hate to hear it. You hate to hear it. You do. But thank you very much for your contributions, Joe. All the same. (laughs) Right back at you. (laughs) Listener, thank you so much. We'll be back on the feed soon. But for now, bye. Bye.